When it comes to children and what they think the Bible says, there are infinite answers. Here are just a few. A Christian should only have one spouse. This is called monotony. Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. Solomon had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. The greatest miracle in the Bible was when Joshua told his son to stand still and he obeyed. Moses died before he ever reached Canada. When you get scared, God will bring you a quilt. God said, the comforter will come. The epistles were the wives of the apostles. And this is from my own personal experience in my first year of ministry. It was vacation Bible school week, and the children were learning about the life of the apostle Paul. The first day, Matthew, who was four at the time, went home and said, Mom, did you know that Paul was blonde for three days? If you are confused about any of these facts, reach out to me and I'll clear them up for you. As we approach Acts chapter 8, it's important for us to remember all that has happened before we meet Philip and the angel. Acts begins with Luke recalling the last days of Jesus with his followers, then the ascension, then the decision of who's going to replace Judas. Then we have Pentecost, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, a physical healing, some sermons from Peter, the selling of some property, but not all of the property, which then led to some sudden deaths, the growth of the community, some arrests and jailings, threats, beatings, more preaching, the delegating of tasks, another trial that led to a retelling of a lot of Hebrew stories, and finally, a stoning. And people say the Bible is boring? So now let's get to chapter 8, where we meet Philip as he's preaching, healing, and baptizing. Then an angel comes to Philip and tells him to head to the road between Jerusalem and Gaza, a wilderness road, a desert road. And so Philip goes. Like the other apostles, Philip was forced to leave his comfortable place and get out into the world. And from that moment, we get the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Over the years, there have been many who have given lengthy commentary, lots of sermons on the personhood of the eunuch, the meaning of this wilderness desert road, the particular text from Isaiah that the eunuch was reading from, and so much more. You are invited to research all of those if you're interested. And yes, I will admit that those things are interesting, but what jumped out to me in the reading of this text was joy enthusiasm, curiosity, and love. Philip runs to the chariot that is transporting the eunuch to engage him in conversation. With enthusiasm and curiosity, he asks the court official, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how can I? And here is where we are stopped in our tracks. Or at least I think we should be. Are you reading and hearing and seeing what this story is telling us? There is no insulting, no boasting, no self-importance in this moment. 
The person in the chariot is a court official. They have power and privilege and prestige. Philip knows that. And Philip does not have any of those things. And Philip is not intimidated by them. And the official who does have power, privilege, prestige, that person invites Philip to ride along, to talk, to enter into community with no pretense of betterness. Rather, this person is seeking understanding. In this story, we are seeing two people who are pushing aside all that should be a barrier in order to engage in community and relationship. They are not the same race, the same class. They are not following the same political leader or cultural codes. They are not the same. They are strangers, their worlds never needing to meet. By the time she was 17, Lynn Cox had swum the Catalina Channel once and the English Channel twice. Holding multiple records for open water swims, Lynn was accustomed to early mornings in the Pacific Ocean. She was not bothered by the cold water, the vastness of the sea, or the creatures who allowed her to share their space. In training for a long swimming competition, Lynn was finishing up an early morning practice when she suddenly felt the water change around her. The schools of fish near her picked up speed to get away from whatever was causing the disturbance in the water. And Lynn suddenly felt something beneath her. She decided it must be a shark. Moments later, that being revealed itself as an 18-foot-long baby gray whale. The whale, separated from its mother, decided that Lynn was the one that would keep it safe and became at least emotionally attached to Lynn. For Lynn, there was a mixture of emotions, excitement and wonder, fascination and curiosity, and fear. She was not worried that the whale would eat her. She was worried that she would develop hypothermia. She knew that if she swam back to shore, the whale would follow her and would die. So Lynn knew that her only choice was to stay in the water and find the whale's mother in the endlessness of the Pacific. Over the next several hours, Lynn and Grayson, the name she gave the whale, swam out to sea. They swam together, each relying on one another. Grayson helped Lynn swim easier by creating a slipstream, a draft. Lynn, of course, was staying with Grayson to ensure his safety. After several hours, with the help of some fishermen, baby and mother were reunited. Lynn's story shows us how love overcomes fear. Fear. Fear is defined as a distressing emotion aroused by impending danger, evil, pain, etc., whether the threat is real or imagined, the feeling or condition of being afraid. Most of us have a fear of something, spiders, snakes, flying, small spaces. 
These are the things that can cause us some distress. When fear moves beyond something that causes us distress, it can develop into a phobia. And we all know people who have some type of a phobia. I was got curious about phobias, so I looked some up. Have you heard of these? Cumponophobia, a fear of buttons. Tripophobia, a fear of holes. Astrophobia, a fear of thunderstorms. Selenophobia, fear of the moon. And my personal favorite, ideaphobia, the fear of new ideas. Most fears only affect the individual, perhaps those in their immediate circle. A fear of flying means seeking other modes of travel. This can be inconvenient, but often not harmful. Yet of all the fears, all the phobias out there, there is one that is the most harmful, the most damaging, destroying, and deadly. The one that costs all of us, especially the children in our lives. Xenophobia. Derived from the Greek word xenos, meaning foreigner or stranger, and phobos, meaning morbid fear. A morbid fear of strangers. Xenophobia is the irrational sensation of fear experienced about a person or a group of persons, as well as situations that are perceived as strange or foreign. It is the fear of anything that is beyond one's comfort zone. As a cause of so much destruction throughout time, xenophobia has rooted itself into the makeup of our beings. We find comfort in being afraid of the other, the foreigner, the stranger. We find ease in looking at someone who is not like us in physical appearance, bank account status, style of dress, or use of pronouns. We almost delight in our ability to point out the difference. And worst of all, we pride ourselves on reaching the end goal of making the other just like us. Where's the love in this? Where's the welcome? Where's the joy or enthusiasm, wonder, curiosity? And how are we passing this along to our children? The Bible tells me just to do the opposite of this phobia. Welcome the stranger. Show hospitality to another without grumbling. Let strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. Do not mistreat the foreigner who resides in your land. The foreigner who lives among you must be treated like one of your own. Love them as you love yourself. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you. Let all you do be done in love. Above all else, put on love, which binds the rest together and makes them perfect. Love your neighbor 
as you love yourself. Over and over, we are told to welcome. We are told to love. We are not told to live in fear of one another. We are not told to determine another person's value or worth. We are not asked to decide if another deserves a place at the table. We are told to welcome them to the table. We are told to love them while they eat with us. We are told to care for them. We teach our children these virtues. We teach our children care for the stranger. We tell them to show kindness, generosity, and openness to others. We talk about joy and wonder. We talk and we teach and we tell them to love. We teach them what we see in the Bible. And yet, where did we lose our enthusiasm, our joy, our curiosity? When did we lose our love for others? What happened to cause us to become adults who have what we believe is the patent on correctness, however we decide that is? Yes, I'm sure someone is thinking, well, there may have been a trauma. You don't know my story. You have not been in my shoes. And you're right, I haven't. So, I will then ask you what I often ask the children of our church. Have you ever been afraid? Have your fears been said that they're silly? Your fear of snakes or spiders, heights or flying? Let's go a little deeper. Have you ever felt unloved? Have you ever been lonely, insecure, sad? Have you ever been laughed at because you didn't know the answer? Have you ever walked into a space and wondered if anyone cared that you were there? Has anyone ever made you feel like you did not belong? Are you fearful of not having enough money? That no one will be there to care for you when you're sick? Are you so afraid of change that you will challenge anyone who suggests it? What are you afraid of? What is your deepest fear? In 1 John, we read that love is God and God is love. We are called to love others because God has loved us. There are no conditions or requirements or qualities to this love. Let us love one another because love is of God. And this love has no place for fear. There is no place for fear of change, fear of difference, fear of the other. Fear and love cannot live together. They are not compatible. Fear brings judgment. Judgment brings division. And division brings separation. When we are separate from one another, we are separate from God. If you say you love God and hate your sister or brother, you are a liar. 
Would any of us be willing to say that we don't love God? Yet we're willing to say that we hate, or at least that we demonstrate hate. Richard Rohr wrote, if love is the soul of Christian existence, it must be at the heart of every Christian virtue. Thus, for example, justice without love is legalism. Faith without love is ideology. Hope without love is self-centeredness. Forgiveness without love is self-abasement. Fortitude without love is recklessness. Generosity without love is extravagance. Care without love is mere duty. Fidelity without love is servitude. Every virtue is an expression of love. No virtue is really a virtue unless it is permeated or informed by love. This means everything that we do should have love at its root, at its core, at its foundation. Love is the center. Love means paying attention, paying attention to the words we say, the actions we do, even the expression on our faces. Paying attention to the people who we meet, those we know and those we don't. Paying attention to the world around us and how we show up in it. Love means pushing past what scares us, putting aside our own self-interest, our own privilege, our own power for the sake of another. Love means acting like Philip, leaving the comfort zone, running with joy and enthusiasm and excitement to meet this foreigner, this stranger on the road. Love means acting like the official, welcoming another to ride alone, to talk, to share, to build relationship. Love means we are living into the whole being God created. Love means we are honoring the God who surrounds us, dwells in us, and calls us to live in relationship and community with one another. Love means we live out what we tell our children, those who we parent and those who are among us. For the Bible tells me so. Amen.